If you'd get your Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. As you're turning there, let me encourage you, if you have not tried participating in our midweek services, I'd encourage you to do so. We have a great group of volunteers who provide biblical instruction for children and our teenagers and our young adults and the adults meeting here for Bible study. So I'd encourage you to sample there if you have not done so. In fact, this past Wednesday, the adults started a study in 2 Corinthians. We only made it through five verses, so you're not really behind. So um, I'd encourage you to, to join in with that. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning with verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of the sufferings of Christ, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he is glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will be the ungodly and sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. This morning, as we progress through the book of 1 Peter, we come once again to his discussion of suffering. Now, let me remind you that Peter was writing to a group of born-again believers at a time in history and in a location where suffering was a reality for them. And in fact, the Holy Spirit prompted the writing of this just before major persecution was about to set in on Christians. And so Peter here once again revisits this idea of suffering as a Christian, but in this text, he draws the focus in on suffering because of your commitment to Christ and how it glorifies God. How ultimately we may suffer for being a Christian, and how ultimately it all culminates in the glorification of God. That's kind of his intent here in this latter part of chapter 4. So as we study this, I want you to keep in mind that as we look at this passage, we're looking at suffering as the product of commitment to Christ and what it produces. And what we find is it produces many blessed outcomes, all of which culminate and focus on the glorification of God the Father. So that's the overall emphasis of the text. Let's look at pulling it apart and look at the specifics of what's being said. Now here we're going to see the author is going to lump all suffering into two major categories. 
Now, we could take a study and we could look specifically at key texts and we could identify specific sources of suffering. But for this purpose, this text just lumps everything into two categories. So that's where we begin. We begin with the cause of suffering. Peter's going to mention the cause of suffering, and he's going to do so by pointing out that there are two distinct and contrasting causes for suffering in the lives of a Christian. These, this is written to born-again believers, keep in mind. Now, so Peter's saying, okay, as a born-again believer, as a child of God, as a follower of Christ, there are two major causes of suffering you endure. The first he mentions is this. Sometimes we suffer for the name of Christ. For the name of Christ. You see that there in verse 14. You'll note that it says, if you are approached for the name of Christ. There are times that we experience hardship for the name of Christ. Now, that phrase, the name of Christ... It refers to all that Christ has done, all that Christ has said, the entirety of who he is. It is not simply his name. The world's not necessarily offended at the name of Christ. The world's not necessarily offended at the name of Jesus. In fact, the world uses the name of Jesus and Christ quite often in a blasphemous way. It's not the name that's offensive. It's what the name represents. The reality of the truth that Jesus represents and reveals. That's what's offensive. You see, suffering may come as we pledge our allegiance to Christ, to his gospel, to his kingdom, because the world finds Jesus Christ offensive. His gospel offensive and his kingdom offensive. Suffering for the name of Christ is suffering as I pledge my allegiance to all that Jesus stands for. You'll also note there in verse 13 the phrase partaking in the sufferings of Christ. You see, as I give my allegiance to Jesus, I'm not just a casual church member who rolls in and rolls out, but I have pledged allegiance to the Lamb. I live for Jesus. I'm committed to his gospel and his kingdom. I may find that I'm partaking in the sufferings of Christ. That refers to experiencing the same kind of sufferings as Jesus. That is suffering for the sake of righteousness. You go back and study the Gospels and you'll find the Son of God entering the world, living a perfect life, living righteously, yet being despised for his righteous living. Portraying the truth and speaking the truth, yet being rejected because of the truth. And to share in his sufferings is to share in suffering for the sake of righteousness and the truth of Jesus. To share in the sufferings of Christ simply means that the hatred that struck Christ strikes us because of our commitment to Christ. When I'm reproached or ridiculed, when I'm persecuted because of the stand I take for Jesus. When I will boldly say my allegiance belongs to Christ as my Savior and Lord, and I'll live my life accordingly. What happens, my friends, is the more adorant of a Christ follower we become, the more distinct in this world we become, the more different to the world we become. And as that happens, 
our godliness, the truth we represent, causes other people to face their sin, to face their lostness. The world doesn't like that. The truth we portray, the truth we hold to, it requires others to confront their guilt, their need for a Savior. The world doesn't like that. As born-again believers confront sin and worldliness with the gospel and biblical truth, we find ourselves at odds with those who oppose Christ. Suffering for the sake of Christ is simply living adamantly for him and being rejected just as the world rejected him. It happens. The world rejected Jesus. It often rejects his followers, the ones who are adorant, the, the ones who are fervent, the ones who are really committed to him. Yeah, well, that's encouraging. Yeah, I know. It's encouraging, isn't it? Believe me, this is something preachers struggle with. Do I really want to tell people this? Live for Jesus, you'll suffer. But I can't ignore the truth. And I can't lie to you. See, commitment to Christ, commitment to righteous living, it makes us enemies to those who oppose Christ. And we may suffer for his name. See, Peter's introducing this concept. He's already introduced it actually in the study, but he's revisiting. The reality for some born-again believers is that they experience suffering because they are sold out for Jesus. And now they're at odds with those in the world. So sometimes we suffer for the name of Christ. He mentions a second reason suffering comes into our lives as born-again believers. He does so there in verse 15. You'll note, he says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, as a busybody. Sometimes we suffer for sinfulness. Sometimes God's children experience suffering because God's children are Indulging lifestyles of sinfulness. We're living in disobedience. Let none of you suffer as, and everything listed there is sin. We could just sum it up as this way. Let none of you suffer as a sinner for your sinful behavior. Don't indulge a lifestyle of sinfulness, for you'll find suffering that comes as a result of that sin. And in such suffering... There is no closeness to God, only callousness to God. In such suffering, there's no comfort from the Spirit, only the conviction of the Spirit. But in our text, one verse is designated to that, and the author moves on. So we're not going to camp out there either. The focus here is what do I do when I suffer for the name of Christ? When I'm truly committed to Jesus and I find myself being ridiculed or reproached or persecuted. I'm suffering because I'm so committed to Jesus. That's the focus of the text and so that's where we'll stay. Peter has pointed out some of you are suffering for the name of Christ. Then he goes on to address what to do. He goes on to address the Christian in suffering. The Christian in suffering, okay? So I'm sold out. I'm truly living for Jesus. I'm living for Jesus so much so that I have family members who have alienated themselves from me. 
I'm living so much for Jesus that I have friends who are ridiculing me. I have school peers who mock me. I'm living so much for Jesus that on the job, I'm being persecuted and overlooked for promotions or this, that, or the other. What do I do? How should we respond when we're suffering for the name of Christ? How do we respond when we're suffering for the sake of Christ? What is our response when this happens? Well, Peter's going to tell us some things to do. How to respond? Well, the first thing he says is this. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. Verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. Do not think it strange that the gospel of Christ is offensive to many, and as a bearer of the gospel you are reproached. Don't be surprised by that. Do not think it strange that those offended by the truth who cannot refute the truth will attack the messenger of the truth. Don't be shocked by that. Do not think it strange that the world won't accept the life of godliness you live as the world opposes Christ. Don't be shocked by that. Don't be shocked by persecution that comes as a result of your pursuit of holiness. Don't be taken off guard. You see, when we get serious, when we get serious about living in obedience to God and serving his kingdom, advancing his gospel, we face opposition. We face animosity from unbelievers. Don't be surprised. Don't be taken back. Peter says, don't think it's strange. You know the world you live in and you know how it responded to Christ and you know you're living for Christ. Don't be shocked. Don't be taken unaware. Don't be taken off guard. Rather than be surprised, be prepared. Be prepared for the world's reaction to your faith when you get real about living faith. Be prepared. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible very plainly states, Those who will live godly in this world will suffer persecution. You're going against the flow of the world. There's resistance there. There's friction there. You realize even a dead fish can go with the current, right? A dead fish goes with the current, but a born-again living fish goes against the current. And there's resistance there. If you're truly alive in Christ and living for him, you go against the flow of the world. Jesus plainly said the world hated him, it'll hate his followers. Don't be surprised, be prepared. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is preparing his disciples. He's sending them out. He's sending them out to preach and to heal. He's getting them ready. He's giving them instructions. And he knows they're going to face opposition. And in verse 22 of Matthew 10, or excuse me, 16 of Matthew 10, he says this. Behold, I send you out a sheep in the midst of wolves. So here's what you do. Be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Be prepared. You know you're going to face opposition. Be prepared. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That speaks of utilizing sound judgment, spiritual shrewdness, while maintaining integrity and impurity in your life. 
When you face opposition to your fervent Christian living, what do you do? You prepare yourself with sound judgment, spiritual shrewdness, and make sure you maintain your integrity and purity before God. That's what you do. You recognize how to limit hostility without being belligerent and still representing the gospel. My favorite explanation I've ever read of Matthew 10, 16 says this. We're to have a combination of unflinching zeal and calm discretion. I know that I'm going to face opposition when I get sold out for Jesus, when I get fervent about living for him, when I get real about my faith and live it. So what do I do? I have a combination of unflinching zeal for Jesus with a calm discretion to handle the attacks. I'd be prepared. We've already seen in this book, we're to be ready to give a defense of the hope within us. We're, we're to speak with meekness and fear. We're to be ready. We're to be prepared. We're not to be taken off guard to the world's response as we live as ambassadors for Christ. So I have to ask you today, if you get real about Jesus in your life and you suffer for his name, are you prepared? Are you just bouncing through your Christian life haphazardly? Whatever comes, comes. Whatever happens, happens. We're to be prepared. Here's the second thing Peter says. Second response. He says we should rejoice. You see that in verse 13. But rejoice to the extent you partake of Christ's sufferings. Rejoice. That's counterintuitive to the human mind, to human logic. I should rejoice in suffering. But we're talking about as a fervent, adorant enthusiast for Christ, suffering for his namesake. And the scripture says when that happens... It should produce a joy within us. When, he, when we commit ourselves to Christ, it becomes a joy to be counted worthy to suffer for him. As I suffer for the cause of Christ, a joy springs up within me because I'm worthy to suffer for my Savior. It's what you see in Acts chapter 5. Remember there, the apostles... They're in Jerusalem and they're teaching, they're preaching Jesus, they're healing people in the name of Jesus. They're not backing down from those who killed Jesus. They're telling it like it is. Here's how the cow eats the cabbage. You did it, you sinful and lawless men. You crucified Christ who God raised. And through him you can be saved. And they're really doing a powerful work. And, well, the powers that be don't like it. And at one point there in chapter 5, they take the apostles and they beat them. After giving them a real good beating, they say, now you stop talking about Jesus. You stop living the way you're living. And you remember what the Bible says happened when they departed? It says they departed from the presence of the council and rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. They were beaten and shamed but counted it all joy that they were worthy to be shamed for the name of Jesus. When a person truly sells out to Jesus and lives for him, ridicule, resentment, 
persecution becomes a marker of, hey, I might be doing something right, and it produces joy. You see, when we count the cost of discipleship, which is something Jesus called for time and again, when we count the cost of discipleship and we compare it to the suffering of our Lord, when we put it in the right perspective, we really do find honor that comes in partaking in the sufferings of Christ. There's a joy in knowing that I'm walking just as he walked to the point that now I'm suffering as he suffered. There's a joy there. The text goes on. It says that we should glorify God. When I find myself suffering for the name of Christ, one of the responses I should have is to glorify God. In fact, all of this ultimately is going to that location, to the culmination of glorifying God. But it mentions specifically, verses 14 and 16, bringing glory to God. In the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ, for the purpose of his gospel, for the advancement of his kingdom, I do so for the glory of God. I seek to glorify God in this. Suffering becomes an opportunity to glorify God as I realize I'm living a life where I am counted worthy to suffer for Christ. That joy within me allows me to come to a place of worship where I can glorify God. Suffering becomes the opportunity of worship when I maintain the right perspective. When I understand it is an honor to suffer shame. For Jesus, When I understand it is an honor to suffer ridicule for him, when I understand it is an honor to suffer for the name of Christ, then I worship with gratitude that I've been counted worthy, just as the apostles were. When I recognize the comforting presence of God's spirit, when I recognize how he's working within me to uphold me, to strengthen me, to comfort me, it leads my heart to a place of worship. When I can keep a grasp of the right interpretation of Scripture and hide that word in my heart, it gives me a confidence that God is working in the midst of difficulty for my good, that he's at work to conform me to the image of Christ, that he is strengthening my faith, and in that confidence I can worship. You see, as I suffer for the cause of Christ, it's just opportunity to worship. It should lead me to a place of worship. That's counterintuitive, I know, but we're talking about the work of the divine spirit, something that's supernaturally happy within you because God's presence is within you. Here's the fourth thing Peter says about responding to suffering for Christ. In verse 16, he says we should not be ashamed. We should not be ashamed. In fact, he says here, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now that's a very pointed statement to say suffering as a Christian. Because in our world today, that name and that term Christian is just thrown around. It kind of means anyone who will say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. In fact, it's really lost any meaning at all, if you ask me, because too many people claim to be Christians who aren't. But when this was written, when this was written, the name Christian was not a positive statement. It was not a positive thing. It was not meant as an uplifting term of adoration. In fact, in the first century, it was a derogatory term meant as an insult. 
When the world looked at those followers of Christ and called them Christians, it was a statement of reproach. It was demeaning. It was meant as an insult. And yet we see here that in the midst of an insult, we bear no shame. I think the point is simply this. That which the world would define as derogatory and demeaning, it brings no shame to us when we're living sold out for Jesus. Doesn't matter what the world would say. Doesn't matter the reproach the world would like to levy upon us. It doesn't matter the insults that the world would like to heap upon us. I bear no shame in that. I'm not ashamed in that. I'm a follower of Christ. I don't respond with shame, cowing down, hiding my faith. I respond unashamedly, standing for Christ without compromise. I don't give in. You see, my friends, if you suffer for the name of Jesus, if you share in the sufferings of Christ, there's no shame in that. You should not be ashamed in that. In fact, you should see that as a badge of honor, whereby you are living for Christ the way you should. The next thing Peter says here. How do I respond when I suffer for the name of Christ? He says we should commit our lives to God. See that in the last verse of the chapter. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him. Commit their souls to him. And quite honestly, suffering or not, we should commit our lives to God. That is to entrust our lives to God. But suffering drives us to commit our lives to God, to commit the entirety of our lives to God. That's really what happens that word commit there is to entrust as if you are depositing something of value for safekeeping. It's the picture of taking a valuable and putting it in the lockbox in the bank where it is completely secure. And so what's being said here is, as I suffer for the sake of Christ, I deposit all of my life, all of my concerns, everything about who I am, I deposit that into God's safekeeping. No, I may not know how my peers at school will react when I get serious about Jesus, but I'm trusting that into the safekeeping of God. No, I may not know the response I get from my family as I really get serious about Christ, but I'm depositing that concern into the hands of the Lord. I may not know what my coworkers will do or how my employer will respond when I draw a line about my commitment to Christ, but I'm depositing those concerns into the hands of God for safekeeping. I may not know what tomorrow may bring, but I have deposited the entirety of my life and my concerns into the hand of God for his safekeeping. That's what that means there, to commit your soul to God to entrust everything to him. In fact, that word commit there is the exact same word that Jesus spoke on the cross when he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That's what we're doing. We're looking to God as the faithful creator who is trustworthy to safeguard our well-being and everything in our lives, to do what is right for us at all times and trusting him with all outcomes. We're going to just be adamant sold out for Jesus, and we'll trust God with the rest. Let him work it out. One last thing 
mentioned here that we should do when we suffer for the name of Christ. We should do good. We should do good. Once again, that's the last verse. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. When I'm living my life committedly for Christ, I have pledged allegiance to him and I'm living that way. And hardship befalls me because of that. I continue to do good. Now, to do good here means to continue in the will of God. To do what pleases Him. It's not just do good actions. It's not just do good things. It is to abide in God's will and please Him. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 admonishes us to live our lives in order to please God. That's the bottom line. Well, how do I live my life? To please God. How do I make my decisions? To please God. How do I interact with people? To please God. That's the bottom line. We're to please God. You see, doing good here isn't doing good according to human standards, but God's standards, His will. What does God define as pleasing? What will help me abide in His will? I take deliberate action then to modify my actions, my attitudes, and my words that I am pleasing to God in all I do. So I find myself suffering for the name of Christ and it drives me to do all the more to be pleasing to God and live in His will, even in the midst of that. That's how we respond. But that's not where He stops. He adds one other thing. Because he talked about the causes of suffering and he talks about the Christian in suffering. But then he wraps it up by explaining the culmination of suffering. Now once again, let me point out, ultimately, this is all culminating for the glory of God. Every aspect of this. When we suffer for Christ's sake, it's for the glory of God. When we respond appropriately with our lives, it's for the glory of God. When we receive blessings through this, it's for the glory of God. That's where it all culminates. But let's look at the specific individual culminations that happen in our lives. You see, suffering for the name of Jesus, sharing in the sufferings of Christ does something in our lives individually, it produces positive outcomes for us that ultimately direct us to the glory of God. Let me point out just a few things that happen for us individually. As we experience suffering for the name of Christ and we respond appropriately, here's what we find. Our faith is proven and it's purified. Verse 12, beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. The trial which is to try you, that is to test you, to prove you, to show that you're legitimate, you're valid, you're genuine. See, the scripture says here that these fiery trials are utilized by God to test our faith so that it may be proven. The truth is, you really don't know how valid your faith is until your faith is tested. 
You don't know how genuine your faith is until the genuineness of your faith is pushed. And so as we suffer for the name of Christ, one of the benefits we receive is that our faith is proven, it's tested, the genuineness of it is shown. And you realize it's only those who have a genuine faith in Christ who will endure such suffering to the end. There are many people who have an intellectual knowledge of Jesus or a casual commitment to Christ, who like to sit on a church pew, who like to participate in a church a little bit. But they fall away when suffering comes. When persecution comes because you stand up for the name of Jesus, well, you just kind of fizzle out. That's the testing of your faith to prove how genuine it is. You see, when following Jesus is no longer easy, or when following Jesus is no longer the means to fulfill those people's selfish intentions, and the heat gets turned up a little bit, they leave. They're gone. They fade away. They fall away. It's described in 1 John chapter 2 this way. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. Those who claim faith in Jesus, but when the rubber hits the road and things are going to get tough, they're gone. Those who have a casual commitment to the Lord, but when the testing of their faith really occurs, it doesn't stand up. I mean, the truth is, I'm going to climb out on the limb and I'll just go ahead and saw it off. Here we go. The truth is, we have those who claim a commitment to Christ, but it's hard enough to get them to come sit in a pew on a Sunday much less endure hardship for the name of Jesus. The testing of our faith proves the genuineness of our faith. And I'm glad faith can be tested and genuineness can be proven. Going back to Matthew chapter 10, where he was preparing his disciples to go out, there towards the end of that chapter in verse 22. He makes a statement that it is those who endure till the end that will be saved. Now, what he's saying there is this. Only those who have truly been saved will endure to the end. Only those who have a genuine faith in him will endure persecution and suffering and hardship and still be there in the end. Their faith will be known, the genuineness of their faith will be seen. A genuine faith, trust in God's sovereignty, even when suffering's happening and it endures. Our faith is proven. But not only proven, it's purified. Take note of that phrase, fiery trial. That has a much deeper meaning than it's hot or it's difficult. In fact, the way the text is worded, this can refer to the kind of fire used to refine metals by purging out impurities. Not only is my faith proven, my faith is purified. As through trials and persecutions and suffering, God works to purge out impurities from my faith. Those things which would hinder my 
process of growing in Christ's likeness are purified, are purged. Impurities are removed that would hinder spiritual growth. And you know, the truth is this. A lot of us, I'll throw myself in this boat, a lot of us, we're hesitant to work hard enough to remove those things that hinder us until God puts us through the fire to remove them for us. And then those things which would hinder our Christ-likeness are removed and we begin to grow more in the character of Christ. Our faith is purified. Here's a second blessing we receive in this. The Bible says we will experience exceeding joy. We will experience exceeding joy. See that in verse 13. Verse 13 is really a reference to the return of Christ. It's talking about the return of Jesus. And at the return of Christ, those who partake in his sufferings will, will rejoice with his exceeding joy and exaltation. Those who have truly suffered for the name of Christ have this jubilation when Jesus returns. They have suffered for him, and now he's back, and it culminates in this great celebration, a jubilation, this exceeding joy as the text describes it. In fact, I believe the greater one's suffering, the greater one's jubilation when Christ returns. The church of Corinth was told, therefore, we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is becoming renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. There'll come a day when this all culminates with rejoicing. And I may suffer for the name of Christ now, but that suffering will be compounded and transformed into jubilation when I see him return. Here's a third benefit that's mentioned here that happens for us individually. We are blessed by the Holy Spirit. You see that in verse 14. Verse 14 says the Holy Spirit rests upon us. He rests upon us. Now we know born-again believers have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but this is a neat reference. He rests upon us. That phrase refers to how relief and refreshment are brought upon us by the presence of God's Spirit. That in the midst of our suffering, the Spirit of God brings a relief and refreshing within us. It's the supernatural work of the Spirit. The Spirit of God steps in. He does what Jesus said he would do in John 14 when he says he's the helper, he's the comforter. He comes in to provide relief and refreshing. Now, it's really interesting because this phrase that Peter uses ties directly into what we studied Wednesday night in 2 Corinthians when we talked about the comfort that God brings. Some of you will remember from Wednesday, this is not just simply solace. It's not simply sympathy. It is a divine strengthening that is made possible because the Holy Spirit lifts us and sustains us with support and encouragement. You see, as a child of God, I'm suffering for the name of Christ, and there's this supernatural thing that occurs within my life. The Spirit of God not only provides solace and sympathy, but lifts me, supports me, strengthens me, encourages me in the midst of such suffering. There's a special provision 
granted to those suffering for the cause of Christ. I want you to look at the description used here. And maybe I'm just splitting hairs for myself, but I find this interesting. Verse 14. If you are approached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Spirit of glory. In my mind, that phrase takes me back to that Shekinah glory you read about in the Old Testament. That glory of God that's a reflection of His presence, His special presence among His people. The glory witnessed by His people as His presence drew near to them. The Shekinah glory. My friends, facing trials and difficulties for the name of Christ, I believe, puts us in a position to experience this special aspect of God's presence as he draws near to strengthen us and encourage us, even honor us for our willingness to suffer for the cause of Christ. It's just a reflection of what he's promised in Hebrews 13, where he'll never leave us or forsake us. His gloriful presence is there. One last benefit that we receive directly through this process is that our hope and salvation is fulfilled. See this in verse 17 and 18. Our hope of salvation is fulfilled. The reality is suffering, persecution, it may find us, but the hope of our salvation is secure and unchanging and eternal. There is No degree of suffering for the name of Christ that will shake our security in Christ. In fact, going to the book of Romans chapter 8, really the whole 8th chapter would be good, but let me just start with verse 35 and jump to verse 38. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Suffering may find me, and persecution may come, but my position in Christ is eternally secure and unchanging. In fact, in the end, Our hope is fulfilled as salvation culminates. In the end, our hope is fulfilled as the eternal life we live in now is fulfilled in eternity. We enter into the heavenly realm of God's presence regardless of what happens here. That hope cannot be shaken and salvation cannot be hindered. But I want you to take note of how the text says our salvation is completed. Verse 17, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. For it begins with us, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and sinner appear? The righteous one is scarcely saved. What that phrase means is with much difficulty. With much difficulty, I will realize the culmination of my salvation. Not because it was difficult for me to come to Jesus. He offered a free gift 
but through many unjust sufferings and fiery trials through this life, I will see the culmination of my salvation. Only by passing through this life with its unjust persecutions, with its difficulties and sufferings, will we see the fulfillment of salvation. God's children, who are eternally secure, endure suffering, hardships, and trials. But notice what it says. If this is the case for God's children, then the suffering of the ungodly and the sinner will be exponentially and eternally worse. If the righteous of God, his children, go through hardships and trials, yet it culminates in their salvation, the unbeliever, his or her suffering, is indescribably worse as they are separated from God throughout eternity with no hope of salvation and destined to a place called hell. The reality, my friend, is this today. You've either come to a place of repentance where you've called out to Jesus in faith, admitting you're a sinner, that you believe that he is the source of your salvation, and you've confessed, I need you to come into my life, Jesus, and be the master of everything. You've either done it or you haven't. And if you have, you're secure in Christ, and this world may bring trials and difficulties, but it culminates in a heavenly, eternal home for you. But if you've not, you go through life and its trials and its difficulties just to enter into far worse trials and difficulties and suffering. So I wonder where you stand with God today. We're all going to endure hardships. That's part of this world. God's children will endure them with the hope of eternity and it'll be fulfilled. Without Jesus, you have no hope. Just hardship. Where are you at today? Those of you who say, look, I'm a born-again believer. I know I am. Okay, good. Are you living your life for Christ to the point that you're suffering for his namesake? And are you responding appropriately? Or are you just playing the Christian game, bouncing around, and you make no difference for the kingdom. You have no commitment to the gospel. You have no allegiance to Jesus. Where are you at today in that? I'm challenging you today. I'm drawing the line in the sand and telling you, you either stand up and say, I pledge allegiance to Jesus and I'll suffer for him. Or you cow down and be a coward. But the choice is yours today. Those of you who don't know him, the choice is very plain for you. You either receive him or you reject him, but it's your choice.